Uh, we're kicking off our Advent series, uh, our, our Christmas uh, weeks leading up to Christmas. And so I'm excited to do this as we jump into everything. We're going to be in Isaiah chapter 11 here in a minute. But if the Christmas carols and all of the commercials that have now uh, been coming through on my screen all the way back to even like Halloween, some of these Christmas commercials, if any of those are right, Christmas is a holiday. It is a season of hope, of hope. But what does that even mean, this word hope? In preparing to teach today, I was sitting down and uh, getting my computer all set up, my little you know, workstation, and was trying to find, you know, working on a Christ, my Christmas teaching. And so I need to get some Christmas music going. And so as I uh, put together all of my, uh, my you know, document and my Bible and all my books here, and then I started going to Apple Music to find some music to listen to. Let's find some Christmas music. And so uh, Apple Music, they had a little click through where they've got all of their like holiday playlists right here for like, the classical Christmas, R&B Christmas. And then they had this playlist that was entitled the, the Topic of What We're Looking At Today, just a playlist called Hope. And so I was like, okay, I want to see what Apple Music puts forward as hope and what they mean by that. What they had in the uh, description of the playlist was this. They said, here's a playlist built to inspire hope. And what did they define it as? That chin up, change is going to come, things will get easier, feeling of faith that grounds us in and through the rough patches to keep the fire going for another day because all positive action starts with the belief that things can and should be different. Hold out it's worth it. And so here we have Apple Music in their playlist entitled Hope, their definition of hope. It is that chin up, change is going to come, things will get easier. That feeling of faith is what they call it. And then in this playlist, what they identified songs of hope as being were songs like Roar by Katy Perry. Songs like Stronger uh, from Kelly Clarkson. Songs like Don't Stop Believing by Journey. Survivor by Destiny's Child. And for some reason, Eartha Kitt's rendition of Santa Baby. What does that have to do with hope? So regardless of the song choice, in popular usage, I don't think Apple Music is, is you know, their editors or whoever's putting together the playlist descriptions. I don't think they're misusing the way that we use hope in our common language and the way that we talk about it. For us, popular use today, hope equals optimism. Hope, hopeful people are those who see the glass half full. They are those who look for the silver linings behind every gray cloud. They are uh, embodied in the patron saint of this kind of optimistic, you know, hope. Uh, in, uh, here's, I'm just like advertising for Apple today, but the, uh, the new series, uh, well, came out back in the fall, but Ted Lasso, uh, he is the patron saint of optimism and hope. And so here we have this idea that, that, that what, in saying that Christmas is a season of hope, what we're saying based off our language is that Christmas is about optimism. It's why this playlist was included in their holiday lineup, that Christmas is a season of merry optimism. Now, here's the thing. In the past, that merry optimism may have gripped us. It may have got us, you know, quelled up with excitement for the season and this kind of cheeriness of this disposition that we carried. But this year, the decorations and the music and the movies just don't seem to hit like they used to. And feeling this, it's led me to ask, what if what we've been experiencing in Christmas's past was not hope, but some form of seasonal excitement? And what if here in 2020, after all that we've gone through over this past year, and now calling uh, up with, with what Lorenzo just hit on, these, another wave of, of these safer kind of at-home measures that we're taking, 
where it seems like we're not, not only are we not moving forward, we're just kind of stalled here in the midst of these feelings of hopelessness after this past year. What if we have the opportunity or at least the necessity to discover Christmas hope truly and deeply for the first time? I would argue that this state that you and I are in based off of whatever your year has been, the hopelessness of us ever being in this room together again, the hopelessness of life and you know, going out to eat and brunch and having babysitters, right? And being able to get out of the house and away from my children for more than a few hours at a time. That, that all of these things, this hopelessness that we feel and, and the experience of that actually sets us up to observe and, and celebrate, to receive Christmas as it's been by Christians throughout church history, throughout the past 2000 years. You see, over the past 2000 years, Christians have observed what, what they refer to as, as Advent. As April talked about, it's, it's this fancy word for arrival or for uh, coming. And it, this arrival language, this Advent season, the four weeks leading up to Christmas, throughout church history was not an optimistic or joyful celebration. That came on Christmas Eve. The weeks leading up to Christmas were spent contemplating the hopeless state of humanity, the hopeless state of you and me, the hopelessness of our world. And this was all done so that Christmas, the story of the God who created everything, who entered into our world, the, you know, the, the, the incarnation, the virgin birth of Jesus Christ, born as this king who has come to redeem and renew this broken and hopeless world. That, that story, that message could not be assumed, but really truly felt, received, and celebrated. Alongside all of that, the Advent season was, was just as much about celebrating Jesus's first Advent, his first arrival and his birth, as much as it was developing a longing for his second Advent, his return when he would truly make all things right. This is what Advent has been over the past 2000, well, in, in some change. Because what happened to Advent over the past couple of hundred years is this way of observing Advent, this way of building up to Christmas slowly fell to the wayside as the church was shaped by cultural consumerism with the advent of guys like Santa and Rudolph and all of these stories came in and crowded the scene and it pushed this seasonal merriness, this seasonal excitement that began right after Thanksgiving all the way through. And so what the whole season became about was not developing a longing for Jesus, but rather kind of a assumption of Jesus being here. So now let's party. Like I said, this was motivated by a culture of consumerism because who wants to spend money on gifts for each other when you're contemplating your own morality or mortality and the reality of death? This is what Advent was and I think that we are set up to rediscover and reclaim this ancient way of Advent. As we come, beginning to close out this year of hopelessness, of despair, of apathy, of, of seeing hatred and feeling that even welling up within ourselves, of anxiety, we are able to embark on the ancient way of Advent. We're going to do this over the next four weeks by reflecting on the words of the prophet Isaiah, who in many traditions within Christianity was seen as the voice, the prophet of Advent. In some church traditions where they have like assigned readings of what everybody goes through each Sunday called a lectionary, Isaiah time and time again is the most used book of the Bible for Advent with the only exception being the gospel of Luke, which really retells a large chunk or Matthew as well, but a large chunk of the actual birth story of Jesus. 
Isaiah comes as this voice of Advent. And so today, as we set out on the next four weeks of Advent, here are the two questions that are driving us today. One is asking, why was Isaiah the voice of the season? Why Isaiah the voice of Advent? We're going to look into that today. And secondly, how did Isaiah define hope? What was his hope? And how does that transform the way that we understand our hopeless year and the way that we move from here? As always, notes are going to be right there in the chat. You can follow along uh, if those are helpful to you. But with that being said, let's read Isaiah chapter 11, verses 1 through 11, and then we will pray and we'll get right into it. Isaiah chapter 11, beginning in verse 1. The prophet writes, There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge simply by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear. Rather, with righteousness, he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek, the humble of the earth. But he will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips, he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist and faithfulness, the belt of his loins. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat. The calf and the lion and the fattened calf all together and a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze. Their young shall lie down together. And the lion shall eat straw like an ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra and the weaned child shall put his hand over the adder or the, the snake's den. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain. For the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. In that day, the root of Jesse who shall stand as a signal for all the peoples. Of him shall the nations inquire, and his resting place shall be glorious. In that day, the Lord will extend his hand yet a second time to recover the remnant that remains of his people, from Assyria, from Egypt, from Pathros, from Cush, from Elam, from Shinar, from Hamath, and from the coastlands of the sea. Let's pray. And so, Father, we uh, sit here like so many Christians not only Christians, but God, so many of your people over uh, the history, all the way back to the prophet Isaiah, we sit and we receive his words. May they develop within us a longing for God, your advent, for your arrival. God, that we would look back to that first advent in Christmas and look forward to the next. And in it, may we find the true meaning of biblical hope. Speak to us today. Give us ears to hear in the midst of our hopelessness. In your name we pray. Amen. Well, as I mentioned at the beginning, we're spending Advent with the prophet Isaiah. Now, the prophet Isaiah is a little bit of history, and so you don't have to, there's no test, but just to give us a little background here. 
The prophet Isaiah lived from 740 to 700 BC, roughly 700 years before Christmas, before Jesus. And as a prophet, he was this strange mix, if you remember back to the Story of Justice series, of a preacher, protester, and also poet who came with a word of God. His work, yes, oftentimes they would talk about the future, but a prophet's work was far less about seeing the future and more about telling rightly about the present. This is why most of Isaiah's book is a condemnation on Israel for their injustice. If you remember again, back to the story of justice, our development of the quartet of the vulnerable, the widow and the orphan, the poor and the immigrant, Israel's failure to care for them. This is what Isaiah was taking to task time and time again. That Israel, the people of God, his own people, had abandoned their promised loyalty to the creator God who had saved them And so because of that, out of that condemnation and their refusal to change their ways, to repent, Isaiah told of this coming exile, that because of their injustice, because they had forsaken and abandoned and run from God and their desire to be like the other nations, exile was going to come. They wanted to be like the nations who didn't follow God's teachings around justice. And so they were going to become like the nations. It was going to come in the form of the nation of Assyria coming to smash them, destroy the city and lead people out into exile. In fact, that exile moment is what splits the entire book of Isaiah in half. The first half of the book is all leading up to that exile moment where the people of Israel are led out into these other empires. And then the back half of the book is then dealing with what has just happened and where do we go from here? And so, Again, just in in setting up all of that, the whole point of, of talking about the background of the book here is to acknowledge that as we read over Isaiah 11 and his words here, is that he is coming out of the experience of exile, the experience of, you could say, an advent longing, an anticipation for something to happen because of what he was seeing in his present The questions of Isaiah, the questions of exile, the questions of Advent are questions like, what do we do with the darkness and evil in this world? What are we to do with the rampant injustice that continues, not only dealt at at a street level, but even within courts and judging systems as he takes the task, uh, even in this prophetic word here? What are we to do with chaos and death amidst and at work in this world through viruses and cancer and through these random happenstances where someone is taken too quickly? What are we to do with the feeling of exile, the feeling that God has abandoned us and now we're left alone? These are the questions that Isaiah was facing. These were the questions that his audience, the people in exile were facing. These are the questions that bring us into the Advent experience. This Christmas season, Advent, the ancient way of Advent, is when we take a long, hard look, both inward and outward, at the hopeless state of our own hearts and lives, but also at this world. As the author Fleming Rutledge, she puts it, Advent begins in the dark. Advent begins in the dark. And that's why this series of Advent is what we're calling Christmas in Exile, acknowledging that we have come out of a a year of exile in many ways, a year of disillusionment, of loss, of not feeling at home, even though we're locked in our homes, of depression and anxiety, of fear, again, of hopelessness, that this year we're we're celebrating, we're observing, we're, we're looking towards Christmas in the midst of our exile. 
But beyond just bringing this kind of nihilistic despair, Isaiah also held out amid that darkness, a repeated over and over and over and over again in both the first and second half parts of the book, this recurring hope that we saw there at the end of chapter 11, well, not the end, but in verse 11 of chapter 11, where he says, in that day, the Lord will extend his hand to recover the remnant that remains of his people. This was the repeated hope of Isaiah throughout this entire book of Isaiah is the Lord will recover the remnant. He will recover his remnant. He will recover his remnant. That though exile, and this is an experience, has stripped away so many of the religious pretenders, leaving only those who remain, this remnant, the Lord will recover his remnant. This was Isaiah's lifelong hope that, that though exile came, though exile was coming and all of this was happening, that the Lord would recover his faithful exiles, his remnant. They would be recovered. They would be returned home. Now these this show up all throughout the book of Isaiah, it's actually the name of his firstborn son, Shear Jashub, which means a remnant shall return. This was so in the midst of all the hopelessness of this, his life and exile coming and then happening, naming his own son this and, and saying it time and time again in his po- uh, prophetic poetry, this was his core hope. The Lord will recover his people, his faithful remnant. But the question is how? What was Isaiah's hope in? What was the basis for him believing that the Lord would recover, that he hadn't actually abandoned these people? We see the answer there in verse 11, but we'll come back to that. Because again, as I talked about at the beginning, what is hope? Here we're about to see what Isaiah holds it as. But back to Apple Music, back to the optimism that we normally think of hope as. As, as in their little description, they, they identified hope as a feeling of faith and a belief that things can and should be different. Now, as much as I love Steve Jobs, may he rest in peace, or Tim Cook, or again, whoever wrote this, The question that I set forward is based on what? What is that feeling of of faith and optimism based on? What is that basis for belief? Because hope without a reason is delusion. Again, I I watched the whole season of Ted Lasso this week because I was on vacation. They refer to the hope that kills. This is the hope that kills, a hope that is based on no reason. That's the sort of delusion here. And so I I say all this because Isaiah is not interested in deluded, baseless optimism. He is not a glass half full, silver linings kind of guy. For him, hope is grounded in historical fact. What do I mean by this? Look again in verse 11. Where what does he say? Right after talking about this recovering of the remnant, what does he say? That the Lord will extend his hand yet a second time. This little like couple of words here that you can read right past. And I bet if you read this morning or yesterday or at some point during this week, that when you read over this, that what's happening right here, that little phrase is the crux. It is the reason for all of Isaiah's hope the second time. This uh, first time is a link back to the story of Exodus, the, the remnant, the exiles being returned from slavery and exile into Egypt. So as he looked back at them being enslaved in Egypt and God showing up in a mighty way to deliver and set them free, Isaiah looks back at God's faithfulness then as a way of looking forward to a future coming faithfulness. As God did it then, he'll do it again. 
And so here we find that biblical hope is not a, a diluted optimism, but rather biblical hope is a vision for the future based in the past. Say it again. Biblical hope is a vision for the future based in the past, specifically the past faithfulness of God. There's a little bit of Bible nerd fun time. Uh, the, the Hebrew word, when I, if you were to talk to Isaiah about what his hope is, his hope in the Hebrew, it's two main words that we translate. Yahal, the first is just simply means to wait for. That hope is a waiting for because you understand yourself as waiting for something. Not just hoping, not just optimism, waiting for something. Even more than that. The other word for uh, hope is uh, kava, which again means uh, to wait for, right? But uh, what it's rooted in is uh, kava is this root kav, which is the word for a string or a cord, Right? So here I, I stole some of this. I'll make sure I don't break it because um, Emma would, would be very mad at me. Um, this is one of those random things that we don't know when we got this. And it just is in our like Christmas decoration box. We don't know when we got it and we don't know what to do with it. It's too short to put on anything. So I stole it. So kav is the Hebrew word for a cord or a string. And kava can be wait for, but it's also taught used to talk about the experience of when you pull a cord tight. You can see it kind of like jump into, I don't know if you can see that, but that this tension that I can feel, and maybe you can even see right now between that, it's not lax, it's tight. That tension is, is kava. Is, is it's actually the root of kav is the cord. Kava is when it's pulled tight. And it's then used as the language for what biblical hope is. It is the tension. It is an expectation of this cord potentially breaking. I'm going to try not to break it. Of that tension releasing. And so Advent hope, Christian hope, is the experience of tension. This uh, expectation between, again, uh, the times, between the, I'm trying to remember if I'm backwards for you guys, but we'll say this the first time and the second time. That tension between the first and the later. For Isaiah, it was the first that was the exodus, that was this pressure point of pulling him back. And as he looked forward, what we're reading here in Isaiah 11 was the pressure point pulling him forward. So his hope, that tension, what we're reading in Isaiah 11 was this kind of these strings being pulled tightly across. In the same way for us as Christians, as we enter into biblical hope, we have that first tension point of Christmas and even with that, Good Friday of Jesus' crucifixion, of Easter, his death, his ascension, right? And then we are living in between the other tension point, which is his future return when he makes all things right and the resurrection of this world. And so for us, our experience is not one of just kind of doing nothing or, or optimism, but based on what God has done in the past in the person of Jesus, he will also complete in the person. And so we live in this tension time, this tension place. And so again, biblical hope is a meditation of looking back at the first times, which can include like Isaiah, the uh, Exodus, but even as Isaiah does, these little mini first times in his life. Later on throughout the book of Isaiah, he looks back to Isaiah chapter six, where he talks about in chapter six, where he was called in this transcendent, incredible way by God. It was a way of him looking back at his own story to look forward for his own story. We can do the same as we look back not only to Christmas and to Good Friday and to Easter and the work of Jesus, but even our own stories of the faithfulness of God, the provision of God, the healing of God, when everything seemed hopeless, when God showed up. We remember those moments 
And then as we look forward to the future, as God was faithful to me then, years, decades ago, he's going to be faithful to me in the future. So hope is this meditation as we live in that tension place. And so Thanksgiving is far more than excuse to eat too much. It is the basis of surviving exile as we live between the times. Because without, I'm just going to keep playing with my strength. This is my ADHD acting up. But uh, the, the, without the uh, Thanksgiving over the past times of the first times, like Isaiah shows here, what happens is we have nothing to hold our hope into. This is the sort of delusion looking forward with no basis in the past. And simultaneously, you can also have a sort of kind of looking back on the past, but never really connecting it to where the future is going. I think some of us can do that. We know the whole story of the Bible back and forth, but we never connect it to our own hope. That we need to have a true level of gratitude and thanksgiving, of celebration of God's past faithfulness, of remembering, as Moses put it, so that we may look forward for God to be faithful. And we acknowledge that in the middle, it is tense. It is expectation. It is tight and even painful and feels like we're going to break. But that's exactly where biblical hope happens. But this may be weird for me to be talking about because what we've been reading over about a remnant returning is uh, I'm not an Israelite exile. Um, and most of you watching aren't. <laughs> we're not Israelites. And so what, what about for the non-Jewish people? What does this have to do for us? If Isaiah is thinking about Israel. In verses 9 through 10, if you look back, we actually find that uh, for some reason, Isaiah has expanded his vision, his reach of hope beyond just the exile remnant of Israel. To who? Did you notice it as we were reading through? That for him, this work is going to be for all the earth. It will be uh, a signal for the peoples. Of him shall the nations inquire. See, Isaiah's opening his vision for who is going to find this hope, who is going to be recovered and returned beyond just Israel will be for the nations, the peoples of the earth. That though, yes, they may be, as he talks about in his own writings, blind and deaf now due to their idolatry, their rejection of God in a hopeless state, also exiled just like Israel, though that's where they are, that there is a recovering work that's going to happen to them. Of him, this uh, stump, this root of Jesse, as we'll talk about in a moment, of him shall the nations inquire, that the nations, the Gentile, all of these people who though they're not Israelites will come to the God revealed, the God of Israel, they're going to seek after, they're going to look for, they're going to have relationship with, or as Paul translates Isaiah 11 in Romans 15, as Isaiah says, the root of Jesse will come, even he who arises to rule the Gentiles, in him will the nations not inquire, but as he translates it, hope. Neither Paul nor Isaiah were inventing this reach of the work of God being beyond just Israel. It was baked into the beginning pages of this story with God's desire to have all of humanity and all of its incredible diversity within a relationship within him. This is one of the reasons why Christianity has become the most diverse faith in human history. It's because it's baked into the story. And so the reach of Isaiah's hope goes beyond just Israel. It goes to the peoples. It goes to the nations of the entire earth. So if you are an earthling this morning, Isaiah's hope is for you. But more than just the nations and all of humanity, in verses six through nine, we had that beautiful poetry. We find that this return is a return for all of creation. 
In verses six through nine, you saw that incredible poetry of the predator and the prey lying down together, the newborn and the toddler playing with a snake, the donkey and the elephant are now best friends. They are all living in peace with one another. This is the realization of Isaiah's hope was a return to the garden of Eden, all the way back to pages one and two. His vision, his hope was that God was going to make earth garden again. He was going to institute a new world order where even the lions are now munching on grass. We even find this little motif picked up in Jesus's own life where Mark recounts Jesus being in the wilderness after his temptation. It says he was there with the wild beasts. This idea of these animals that would normally be a threat to him, he's living at peace with. But more than just predator and prey, at the end of chapter verse 11, let me jump back up to the top where he says uh, that they shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, that this goes beyond just predator and prey. But as he would later say in Isaiah 25, that death itself would be swallowed up forever. So it's not just uh, vipers and adders and, and bears and lions, but viruses and tsunamis and cancer, they themselves are all erased within God's New world. This is the, the reach and the realization of Isaiah's hope is that he, when he says he's hoping for a remnant to return, that it's not just Israel's remnant and it's not just the exiled nations, but it's actually that all of humanity would be recovered and returned back to the Garden of Eden. And so this hope, this vision that Isaiah has is incredible. Its scope is absolutely cosmic. And for Isaiah, as we saw, it's historical. It's based in the past work of God. But the question is, how will all of this come about? Back to the top of chapter 11 in verse one, we read of the revelation of Isaiah's hope. That it is this uh, shoot from the stump of Jesse and a branch from these dead roots will bear fruit. But then as we continue reading, we find that this shoot from the stump of Jesse, this branch is is a person. It is a he. What does it say? The branch from the root, the shoot from the stump, and the spirit of the Lord will rest upon him, right? And his, his delight shall be, and he shall not judge. And his ears hear that this shoot and branch is actually a person. The hope of Isaiah, all of this reach and realization, the beauty, this whole vision of hope that he has is all located on a particular person. And what he says is that this person is like a shoot that comes from the stump of Jesse. It's a bit of uh, Bible trivia is, is to see if you can remember who Jesse is. I'll give you a second to think about it. If you have the notes open, then you're cheating. <laughs> Jesse, going back to the story of Israel, was the father of King David. And by saying the stump of Jesse, rather than saying the stump of David is what he's getting at is that it's a new David. Because the whole problem with Israel's history was it was sons of David that consistently led Israel into their injustice and idolatry and just the explosion that led to their exile. And so Isaiah looks at that whole family tree and he almost chops off everything and says, what we need is a new kingly line, no longer a Davidic line, but now this kind of new new David figure, this new king who would actually come forth from what has been the dead stump of David's line. In a way, he's also linking to the dead stump of all royal lines within human history. And this idea of life coming from a dead stump is a lifeless thing is actually a hyperlink back to what he writes in Isaiah chapter seven. 
where he talked about this vision of this coming one who said, the Lord will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. Just like the life from the dead stump comes this virgin birth, life from a, a place where we would not expect it or even see it to be possible. And this one, this son who is born, his name, a way of talking about what he is and what he would be like. His name shall be Emmanuel. Later on in the gospel of Matthew, we are given the, the definition is set for us. Emmanuel means God with us. That this this figure, this person who comes from the line of David, who is somehow a life unexpected, is God actually with us? And this Emmanuel links right back to what we saw in verse chapter two. If you were paying attention, uh, really paying attention, you might've seen how many times, is what, how many spirits, I guess you could say, are resting on this, this person. Spirit of the Lord, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, spirit of counsel and might, spirit of knowledge and fear of the Lord. It's this sevenfold, this complete number of God's spirit resting on him. He truly is. Another way of saying sevenfold spirit, Emmanuel, God with us. The spirit of God resting on him. He is God's presence mediated and with us. And the fact that we're here moving towards Christmas, most of you probably are able to start beginning to put the pieces together, but to make it explicit. The one that Isaiah is waiting for is none other than Jesus, the Messiah, the Christ, the one from the line of David, a restart of it, the line of Jesse, born of a virgin who uh, in Joseph, his uh, uh, adoptive father, I guess you could call him, uh, was, was told by an angel that his name shall be Emmanuel because he is God with us, who, who just like Isaiah prophesies here would have the spirit resting upon him as Jesus claims of himself in Luke chapter four. This is, this is all building up to here. You have 700 years before Jesus, him beginning to look into the future. And though hazy, it may be sees what is the great hope of this world. And it is locked up in a person, a true King whose rule would be one, as we see in verses three and four, a, a rule of righteousness and justice, Isaiah says, for the powerless and poor who would bring judgment on the unjust, the proud and the wicked. And more than this being just a claim about his own justice, it is a jab at all of the problems with the political leaders of his day. As for them that they were judging by what their ears heard or what their eyes saw, it's this language of partiality. That in fact, that they were not, they were, it was the, not the wicked that they were killing. It was the wicked that they were giving good, fair judgments for, not unfair, but unfair judgments in their favor. And it was the poor and the powerless and the meek that were being downtrodden by these sorts of king. Isaiah sees the problems of his world and he reads over them. In order for all things to be set right, there is going to be a new king who executes justice and righteous in its fullness. In, in, in doing so, we see that hope for Isaiah, biblical hope, does not take us out of the world, but actually gives us a prophetic lens to view the darkness of this world. It actually thrusts us back into the world as he was doing when he was comparing this figure to the, at that time, the uh, ruler uh, King Ahaz and all of his injustice. So here we have all of Isaiah's hope in what we've just read over today in Isaiah 11, one through 11. All of Isaiah's hope, all of the light that he has amidst the hopelessness and the darkness of his life. As though Israel, as we saw at the end in, in verse 11, though Israel was exiled and alone, they would be returned home. 
Though humanity was deaf and blind in idolatry, they would be given hope. Though nature was ruled by death and chaos in his present tense in the future, there would be a new world order of peace and life. And though political rulers governed with corruption and injustice, there would be a new king who would truly reign with justice and righteousness. You see, Isaiah was not an optimist. And if you might read through more of his chapters over the coming weeks, and though it may appear so in those chapters that he is not an ultimate pessimist, Isaiah saw the dark depths of hopelessness, of the brokenness of this world. And it was from that place he remembered the faithfulness of God. And specifically the faithfulness of God as he was faithful in the past. And so though the present looked hopeless, his faithfulness in the past gave him a vision for God's faithfulness in the future. And 700 years later, Isaiah's hope, the shoot from the stump, bloomed into life in the birth of Jesus Christ. In him, the remnant are coming home. In him, the nations are finding hope. In him, the reign of death is being overturned through his resurrection and through his death before. And in him, the king is being exalted with his reign of righteousness and justice that is being executed and dealt with through his church when his church is being the church. And the reality is, is that though this all has been inaugurated, the remnant coming home, the nations finding hope, the reign of death being overturned and the king being exalted, though all of this work has been kicked off, it's been inaugurated, it's not been consummated. You know, remember the the cord, we live between the times of these two things. As more and more people are being invited to take up the hope of Isaiah, a biblical hope that looks back to the resurrection that looks back to his crucifixion, looks back to the incarnation, the story of Christmas, that looks back to to Isaiah's hope and the Exodus, that looks back to the stories of the scriptures and then looks back on our own stories and looks back at church history over the past 2000 years, all of these as tether points in the past. And that regardless of what we experience in the present, we then view our future in light of God's faithfulness in the past, not realizing along the way that what we're going through right now and right here will one day be brought and will be another tension point of past as we continue to move, as the apostle Paul puts it, a day closer to ultimate salvation. And so for the past 2000 years, this is what the church has been doing when we come into our Advent season. As we look at our present and all of its darkness and all of its lament of all the injustice, all the brokenness within our world. And instead of uh, being an optimist who just chooses to pretend that those things are gonna naturally go away on their own or at some point be dealt with through human ingenuity, we look back in order to look forward. And so as I said at the beginning, Christmas Advent is a season of hope, but it is not cheap optimism masquerading behind Santa and consumerism and a red-nosed reindeer. Rather, Advent begins in the dark. It begins with the hopeless status of our present, one in which humanity is unable to escape. But Advent does not leave us there. It moves us along over these coming weeks. The hopeless status of our present to point us to a manger in Bethlehem where we find that the surprise of the story is the God who entered our hopelessness in order to give us hope. 
unlike any other faith system or religious basis of hope within this world, the story of Christianity, the story of Christmas is the story of the God who looked at the brokenness of a human uh, uh, brokenness and the brokenness of this world. Christmas is this, not the story of a God who looked down and said, okay, now these are the ways that you guys can get your stuff together. Rather, Christmas and Advent is the story of the God who got down on his knees, who humbled himself in his incarnation, took on flesh, and the creator became, in a sense, creation to experience the hopelessness of humanity truly. To know death, to know loss, to know hunger, to know temptation, to know isolation, to know betrayal, to know death. And so the reality is, is that even in the midst of this tension, sorry for the loudness again, even as we live within this tension, is that what Christmas tells us is not only do we have a past that helps us look forward to the future, but we have a King and a Messiah and a God who knows what this tension feels like. And so as we feel that, we can come to him as Hebrews puts it. And we have a high priest who is able to sympathize with us in this tension point, in our suffering, in the tension where hope feels like it's pulling us in half. This is what Advent is all about is that as God was faithful to his people in the past, as God has been faithful to us in the past, he is going to remain and continue to be faithful to us in the future. And though Isaiah did not see it in his life, 700 years removed, and though we may not see the final culmination of it all in our own lives, the hope of Isaiah was not even death itself would be able to keep God from recovering his faithful remnant. Because even Isaiah, though seeing it hazy, understood you can't celebrate Christmas without looking forward to Easter. Isaiah 26, 19, as we end, was the ultimate hope of Isaiah. That not even death could hold the remnant. Where he said, your dead shall live, their bodies shall rise. You who dwell in the dust, awake and sing for joy. For the earth will give birth to the dead. And so this is... In a strange way, Advent and Christmas, this longing develops an expectation for ultimate resurrection, the renewal of all things, the reach of hope. And so over the next four weeks, as we think about hope and joy and love and peace, we also are called to see the status of hopelessness, the status of our apathy and hatred, the, the absence of, of joy and our anxiety that these are the natural ways that the world continues to drag us down and yet to live within the tension point and to find hope and love and joy and peace all the more. Because the story of Christmas is that we have a God who has entered into that, 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 this life with us and that our ultimate hope is that as he was resurrected from the dead, so too upon his return, what we truly long for, so will we. And so let's pray.